0: Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church, located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Now, as I go into the message today, uh, we're finishing off this series titled, When Life Happens, When Life Happens. And now, if you haven't tuned in at all, I never want to just dive into the message without giving you a little context about what's been going down. So, uh, four weeks ago, we dove into this little book called Philippians. Now, Philippians is four chapters long. It is known as the happy book uh, on the streets back in the day before it was put in the Bible uh, and canonized. Uh, It was this letter to the church. It was uh, basically a prison epistle. Paul is writing from prison on how to be joyful. That's an oxymoron. That's a paradox of the kingdom. But that's what Jesus does. He makes us look like the ultimate paradox. And what happens here is Paul writes uh, masterfully for four chapters, and he says gladness, rejoice, and joy over 17 times in this little book. Now, it's not only a happy book, it's a real book. And so you're somebody with a real struggle, you got real problems, man, there's real joy to be found in the Word of God. And so as I look at this book in Philippians, and as we finish, I love how Paul finishes this masterpiece. Uh, he basically uses this term, stand firm, stand firm. Now, the title of my message today is, A Joy That Stands Firm, That Stands Firm. Now, let's look at this verse real quick. Uh, Philippians 4, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. I don't know where you are, just say stand firm real quick. I need people to remind me more to stand firm. I need to tell myself uh, more, I need to stand firm. Paul is finishing this off. Hey, he's, he's covered finding joy in the plan. He's, he's covered how to navigate through the, uh, the, the, the storms. Uh, in, in, in three, he was talking about being detoxed from this world. In verse four, he's saying, okay, now that you know these things, I need you to stand firm, don't retreat. So he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, uh, they did this study on basically different phases of our life. When you're a young person from about 18 to 30, success drives you. Success is the most important thing, they say. But then from about 30 to 70, stability is the number one thing people want. Another way you could say is security. They want security in their jobs, security in finances. They want to find a secure person to live life with. They want a stable footing of life. That's the number one desire. And then at age 70, people desire significance. They just want to know they still matter to somebody. But the majority of our life, the thing that we desire is stability. And here's why. We live in an unstable world. We live in unstable times. Uh, Look at the stock market right now. It's up 20%. It's down 20%. Look at the news. Hey, this is going to be over in a month. This is going to go on for nine months, this coronavirus. I don't know what's happening. It's just unstable information left and right. Paul knew about unstable. Paul knew about an unstable world. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was almost stoned to death. Paul was put in prison. Paul was celebrated. Paul was rejoiced with. So he tasted peaks and valleys. Now. In the midst of this unstableness, Paul's lived a life where he's warranted the voice to be able to actually say what he's about to say. He's about to unpack to the church, hey, I learned how to be stable. I learned how to be a rock. I learned how to not uh, move in the midst of storms because I built my life on the one that is stable and his name is Jesus. Did you know that 55% of Americans are stressed out? Is that a high number? Yes, that's a high number. New York Times came with an article this last year that said that uh, Americans are the most stressed uh, country in the whole world. Average uh, stress uh, is 35% in the world. America's 55%. What that shows me is that more things doesn't equal more peace. What, what happens here is Paul's saying, Hey, I'm going to give you the ultimate stabilizers in the midst of instability. Now, what's a stabilizer? What does that even mean? Let me use a simple illustration, real quick. Uh, an airplane. Uh, an airplane is going to go through turbulence. So when they build an airplane, They put stabilizers on an airplane, mainly in the back of the plane. They're vertical and horizontal. The vertical one will help it not go from side to side, a.k.a. God wants to give you a vertical stabilizer so the world doesn't blow you from side to side and just absolutely just wear you out. So so planes have a vertical stabilizer. Not only do planes have a vertical stabilizer, they have a horizontal stabilizer. Now, the horizontal stabilizer helps it with the turbulence so it doesn't go up and down. And all of us said, amen. I don't know if you've ever been in a plane where it just drops, but if it didn't have that stabilizer, it would keep dropping. No thank you and what what's happening with with this teaching is paul saying hey I'm going to build the church real quick. I'm going to build you real quick. You've been built up with faith. You've been built up to be joyful. But I want to put some stabilizers on your life. I want to stabilize you in the midst of this chaos. And this church right now, they've never gone through a storm like this. And so Paul's adding some internal stabilizers. He's going to talk about the peace of God in one of them. He's going to talk about the contentment of God. And then he's going to talk about the people of God. There's three stabilizers that Paul promises to you and I that in the midst of a turbulent life, in the midst of an unstable life, we can have stability. Again, let's look at this. 55% of Americans are stressed out. You won't find these stabilizers in the world. You're not going to find them. It's like, it's like the ocean. The ocean's everywhere. It's gorgeous. But if you drink the ocean, you're just more thirsty. The world has everything that we could basically want, but then nothing extra our soul needs. And so Paul's going to give us some heavenly stabilizers, because here's the reality. We are trying to look for external stabilizers all the time. Oh, finances will be my stabilizer. Finances will never make you feel stable. Okay, a person will be my stabilizer. No, a person, just some person is not going to make you feel stable. Okay, the right job and the right uh, circumstance will make you feel stable. No, not the right circumstance and not the right job is not going to make you feel stable. Jesus and the promises and the tools that he gave is going to make you feel stable. Can I double down on this illustration? I'm going to double down on it. Um, Imagine making a plane, and for the stabilizers, instead of using this hard alloy steel or whatever they use on the outside, you decide to put some paper and some wood to make it stable. It's the wrong material, and what Paul's doing is like, I'm going to give you heavenly material to have a heavenly peace. I'm going to take uh, whatever you've been using worldly-wise uh, to actually create stability, and I'm going to give you heavenly stuff to create stability. Let's keep going. So he goes on to say in Philippians 4, he goes, I plead with you. There's, okay, I'm going to say two names. Don't judge me. I have no idea how to say these. These names aren't around anymore. Thank you, Jesus, uh, but let's try to say it. Uh, these are two leaders in the church of, of, of Philippi, basically, who have been uh, in a fight. I plead with you, Judea, and I plead with you, SinTech or SinTish or let's just call that person Sin, okay, um, to be on the same uh, to be on the, the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So Paul's saying, you guys, don't forget, like, remember when you were unified over the gospel? Remember when you were unified over just building the kingdom? We were by each other's side building the kingdom, and now there's some dispute. Don't let it divide you. He goes on to say along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Do you see the verbiage he's using right now? He's talking about the book of life. He's talking about eternity, where we're going. He's talking about where they've been. He's talking about who uh, created them, the citizens of heaven. And here's how he finishes it. And this is where it gets real good. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. I'm gonna read it again because I don't know about you, but a lot of Christians worry always. I say it again, they worry always. Paul's saying, get rid of worry. Hey, America, 55% stress, get rid of worry, get rid of being a control freak, and rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice. Hey, you, you like to go worst case scenario all the mind? Hey, get rid of worst case scenario always and start going to best case, which is his name is Jesus. So he goes, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. If I could sum up these four chapters in Philippians, I would just, I wrote, I wrote down a quote. It's a Tyler Johnson original. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, you can just throw it away afterwards. But I thought it was pretty good. So I want to share it with you. Joy isn't found when you get everything on the list. Joy is found when Jesus is the list. Let let, let me unpack that for you. Now, Paul is saying, hey, I don't know why you guys are disputing, but let's go back to where joy is really found. It's in the gospel. Jesus is the, the joy. He has to be the center. You guys are being divided over the preference of some kind of list. There's some dispute. And can I just tell you, if you have a list for the way Christians are supposed to act in your life, you'll always be frustrated and you won't have joy. Because your list actually isn't Jesus. Your list is your preference. Do you have a preference list for a pastor and a church? And you're like, this is my list for the church. And then you have all these things. That preference list will never, ever create joy for you because you'll never find it. Jesus must always be the list. If you have a circumstance list, oh, I got all these things and circumstances. Once these things happen and all the circumstantial things, then I'll have joy. You'll never have joy. That, that circumstance list, you can't find it. Jesus must become the list. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it better than I did. I'll give you a C.S. Lewis one if you didn't like mine, okay? Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. What he's saying is, you write a worldly list, you're going to get nothing. Write a heavenly list. Write a heavenly list. And the heavenly list starts with a guy named Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray. And what I'm going to do after I pray is, we've got three points. This shouldn't be too long. Three stabilizers that Paul unpacks in the rest of Philippians 4. Uh, and I love how God uses Paul to write pen to paper, his heart. God never, ever leaves us out in the wilderness with none of the tools to survive the wilderness. God never leaves us in the storm without the right tools to actually navigate through the storm. He never gets us in the plane without the right stabilizers. I, oh, I love how God always sets us up to win. So let's pray, and let's get into it. God, I thank you for, again, that you are the one that creates stability in the midst of an unstable world. God, that when we are born into this world, it doesn't take us much time to realize how turbulent life really is, that it, it can push us from side to side, that it can make us go from peaks to valleys, highs and lows. Oh, but, Lord, you promise, you promise something different. You promise this unwavering, Joy, you promised this unwavering stability that comes from your spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you breathe on this message. I pray that my words will fall to the floor and that your words soar. And everybody said? Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's look at this. So I'm going to go through three quick little points. The first stabilizer is the peace of God, the peace of God. Let's find that in first, uh, Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to this. Don't be anxious about anything. Stop. Have you ever had any irrational fears? I'm I'm going to tell myself in this. I have had irrational fears my whole life. When I was little, one of my first irrational fears that I can remember is I was afraid of a Ronald McDonald doll. My mom and dad, they have pictures and videos of this. They would bring the Ronald McDonald doll out, and they would just show it to me. And when I would see it, I would be like, ah! And I would scream and I would run. I felt like literally, uh, some like, zombie was going to try to get me at little age four. And my parents thought it was hilarious. Yes, I need to go counseling over it. We'll talk about that later, okay? Uh, second thing is I'll never forget I watched a vampire movie at the age of eight. Should have never seen it. Uh, we never had like, boundaries on movies. It was one of the scariest movies I ever saw about vampires. And so what would happen is, is when it was dark out, I wouldn't go outside anymore. For about a year and a half of my life from ages eight to ten, when the sun went down, I was inside the house. My parents knew that I would not take the trash out if it was dark out. So they'd be like, oh, sun's about to set. Tyler, take the trash out, because they knew. Once the sun set, I was not going outside because I was afraid of vampires out in the dark. What an irrational fear, they don't even exist. And then I got older. I'm not afraid of the dark anymore. I'm not afraid of Ronald McDonald's all. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of cows, and I'm afraid of bears, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Rachel and I get married. She my wife didn't know this, because you don't tell a girl that you're dating and want to marry. Hey, just so you know, I'm afraid of cows, and I'm afraid of bears. So we go on this little trip. We take a road trip from uh, basically San Francisco all the way up to Seattle. And we take the scenic route. We stop at the Avenue of the Giants in Northern California. We stop in all these different places Well, we're up where the big redwoods are in Northern California. And we're walking through the woods. Now, Rachel is an adventurer. Like, she'll get out of the car and she could just walk for days and be like, we should just live here. Like, one of those kind of people. Well, when we get out of the car and we're in the redwoods, my first thought is, oh my gosh, we're going to be killed by bears. Now, I'm not gonna tell my wife that, but I'm—I I have so much fear. So finally, about 15 minutes in, I finally say to Rachel, "Rachel, we can't go much farther. I want to keep the car in the distance so I could run in the car and get in the car if a bear tried to attack us." And I'm like, "Okay, I think bears are like 25 miles per hour, maybe 30 miles per hour. And if they do attack, I, I, I'm gonna have to sacrifice myself because what kind of guy runs from his wife when a bear attacks?" I'm like, "Hey, so how'd you lose your wife? Uh, I'm faster than her, and a bear got her." So I was like, "Okay, I, I know I'm gonna have to be the one that actually takes the hit." So we start walking. 15 minutes in, I tell Rachel, "We got to turn back." She's like, "Why, ba- babe?" we're in the middle of nowhere. There's bears out here. Like, like a bear, like what if we like get between a bear and a cubs? What if we get around like a, a crazy bear that has rabies? What if we get like just a bully bear? Like what if a bear comes and just absolutely destroys us? And Rachel was like, Tyler, there's no bears out here. Of course, she had peace because she knew that one of us was going to survive and it wasn't going to be me, okay? She knew that her man would save her. She's told me ever since this story that she would have stopped and she would have fought the bear for me, but it, it doesn't work for me. I, I lose my man card forever if my wife saved me from a bear, okay? So, we're out there, and I surrender, and I walk around with Rachel for another hour. But man, the next 45 minutes, I can barely tell you what I saw. And I look at the pictures of that walk, and there's pictures of Rachel standing in the middle of a redwood tree the size of a semi-truck. She's literally inside of it. It's, it's, it's one of the most majestic pictures I ever saw. I don't remember enjoying it one bit. I remember taking a picture of Rachel, and there was a river in the background. I didn't enjoy it one bit, because the whole time walking around with Rachel, I was literally looking over my shoulder every second, like, is there a bear? Is there a bear? And then I got home, and I googled bear attacks in America. Let me just give you a little stat real quick. 750,000 black bears in North America, and they kill less than one person per year. Not even one death. Not even one death in a year. And I am out in the middle of paradise with my wife, and a fear is stealing from me. Did you know that the word anxiousness, it's a thief. Anxiousness is a thief. It wants to steal everything from you. It wants to steal from the most majestic, most enjoyable moments. Do you know they did a study that 85% of the things we worry about don't even happen? And the other 15% of the things that do happen, they realize that people say that 90% of that, they can actually handle it. One of the fears, what if I lose my job? And then you lose your job? Wow, I actually made it through losing my job. So they do a new stat, and they basically said 97% of the stuff you worry about won't even affect your life. But what's so sad about that stat is I lost an hour of my life in that little forest because I was afraid of a bear. Rachel and I moved up to Northern California. And I'll never forget, we went on a hike. And there were cows in the middle of the hike. And Rachel thought I saw it like a lion or a tiger, because I was like, get behind me, Rachel. Get behind me. Do you know where we've never hiked again? Where those cows are out in the wild. I don't go to that one anymore. And still to this day, I'm like, man, like i got to get over my fear of cows. It's just stealing from me actually seeing more of the Bay Area. Let me. I'm going to share a silly story today, Can I share a, I'm going to go for it. It's a silly illustration, but I think it, it really makes uh, this point really evident. So anxiousness is a thief. Worry. The word actually worry means to choke. It, it's literally a thief of life, it will, it will literally choke you to death. Uh, you look at even Mark 4, the worries of this world, the Greek word is to choke somebody out, to, to destroy the seed that's supposed to bring life, it's going to destroy it. There was a woman who worried about her house being robbed, and for 10 years she wouldn't even sleep that well at night because she was always worried, she had so many nice things, that if she lost these things, she would be all oh, just so devastated over it. So for 10 years, she's just sitting there at nighttime awake. Is somebody going to rob the house. And so finally, 10 years later, she hears a noise downstairs. And her husband, she wakes him up. Hey, somebody's downstairs. I think we're actually getting robbed finally. Oh, my gosh. And so he goes downstairs, and he sees the robber. He goes, well, sure enough, we're getting robbed. And he says to the burglar, calm as I'll get out, hey, it's so good to meet you. My wife has been waiting 10 years to meet you. She's been staying up every night waiting to meet you. Do you you get how silly this sounds? What he's saying is, the burglar came for one night, but for 10 years, 10 years, joy was stolen, sleep was stolen, things were stolen because of this one moment, and guess what? She can get more things. She could buy a new couch, she could buy new jewelry, but for some reason, she thought the things of this world is where she would have joy, and that's why it's being stolen. So let's go back to reading this and let's unpack it. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God. Woo! The peace of God. Not the peace of the economy. Not the peace of you being in control. Not the peace of you having a tenure at a job. No. Not the peace of having the right person. It's the peace of God. The peace of God. And that's the first stabilizer. Paul says, if you want to have real peace, you're not going to find it in the economy. You're not going to find it even in people, you're going to find it in God. He is the source of peace. He is the God of peace. Uh, The Bible says the Prince of Peace. Let's keep going. Which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble. Oh, I love this. He gives us us the promise, and then he gives us the practice. The promise is the peace of God, but then he tells us how to actually practice the promise. And let's let's look how it um, comes out. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received and heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. He says, put into practice and the God of peace, there it is again, and the God of peace will be with you. My my physical body, when I eat unhealthy things, my body is unhealthy, but when I feast on healthy things, my body is healthy. And what Paul is saying is, hey, your mind, you got to feast on healthy things. And he get, tells you what you're supposed to feast on. He goes, here's what your mind should, my body diet, well, i got a mind diet. And he's saying, hey, a lot of your mind diet right now is worry. A lot of your mind diet is control. He's saying, here's what you should actually have your mind on. Finally, and says whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, that's doctrine. You should actually think about the Bible. You should think about what the Bible says about God. You should think about what the Bible promises about your life. You should think about the eternity eternity that you'll spend in heaven with the Lord. Those are the things that you should be thinking about. Those should be the things that you're feeding your mind. You should be reading the Word of God and then actually meditating on it. Meditation is almost like chewing on Scripture. What what do you chew on all day? You're a better meditator than you think. You're maybe a great meditator about uh, losing your job, you're maybe a great meditator about sickness. Maybe you're a great meditator about um, worst-case scenario with some of your family. Take all those meditation skills that you have, those focus skills on how to chew on that, and take the Word of God and start meditating on the Word of God and see what happens to your mind. See what happens when you put it into practice. Because peace comes from the peace of God, but he says this, and I love this. It's always a spiritual and practical. You can't separate them. It's a false dichotomy that the peace of God is the promise, but you can't have peace without practicing it. Can I put it this way? Christianity isn't a magic pill. It's not some magic pill that you just take and you go, mm, I'm all better. We, we sometimes treat God like a pharmacist. In the Bible, there's not one time he says he's a pharmacist that gives us pills. That's not what he does. He's a healer. He's a doctor. He is the great healer. And what he says, here's how I know how to heal your mind. You need to start digesting this stuff in your mind. It's the Word of God. Can I put it this way? If, if comfort, if you confuse peace for comfort, you're missing it. I'm not trying to communicate the, the comfort gospel. Paul's saying, hey, I'm in prison. I have peace. I'm in prison. I have joy. Some of you, you want comfort. If comfort is your goal, then Christianity cannot be your aim. Comfort is not promised. It's just not, it's just not, it's just not in the cards. But peace in the problems is promised. I, I wrote this down. Uh, I think it's a solid quote. If you, don't, you like it, write it down. Joy isn't having all your problems go away. Joy is having peace in the midst of all your problems. Paul's saying, when the waves come... Uh, when the instability comes and a lot of other planes, they'll show a lot of turbulence. They'll so go left and right, up and down. Something about you just, you keep soaring. You keep steady. You keep strong. Let me, let me um, put it this way uh, for all you worriers. I, I don't know who said this. It's not my, my own quote. I can't uh, remember who said it. I just, but I don't want to take credit for it. Cause it's a really good one. Worry doesn't take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. And if, if you're one of the people you just are really good at worrying, all you're doing is losing today's peace. And so the, Put into to practice this week, find a verse, find a promise of God, and then actually practice that promise of God. Know it from front to back. Say it out loud when you start to stress out. Start to believe the character of God. And until you actually start practicing the peace of God, you'll never have the peace of God. That's, that, that's what Paul shows. The first stabilizer is practice the peace of God and believe the promise of peace of God. All right, let's go on the second point. second point is this, is uh, the second stabilizer is contentment, contentment. Oof, that is, I could preach a series on contentment. I could probably do a 10-week series called the Ten Contentment Commandments because we live in a culture that just sells consumerism. It sells coveting. It sells you don't have what you ha- want yet. And so, I mean, you name it. Like the lifestyle in a beer commercial, the cars that are uh, advertised on Christmas. Oh, you, I know you have this car, but you really need this car. I know you have this life, but you really need this life. Look at every movie, that, what kind of love story it sells. I know you have this love story, but you need this love story. Paul says, I found the secret of contentment. And again, it's not going to be found in the world. It's found in heaven. Let's let's see what he says here. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me indeed. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. In whatever the circumstances. Paul Paul is saying, hey, I've been in the penthouse. I've been in the jailhouse. I've been in the, the Bentley, and I've also been on a donkey. And in both of them, I was content. I've had everything, and I've had nothing. I've been full on the greatest meal, and I've been starving, starving, and I'm still content. He's saying, that, that's what he's saying. he's saying. I've been through it. I've been in storms and being shipwrecked, and I'm still content. And then I've been on the beach on sunny days, I put it that way, and I've been content. How does he do that? Let's see what he says. I know whats uh, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. Oof. I love that he says secret. He understands how fleeting this is in every culture, every society throughout history. Because I've learned the secret of being content. And in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's that secret? Let's do a multiple choice real quick. Let's do a multiple choice on where you think contentment comes. Ready? There's the prosperity theology. Prosperity theology says this. You'll be happy. You'll be content when you're rich. So the prosperity gospel you, you, you obey God to get a lot of things from God. God is a vehicle to get the world. And once you get the world, you'll be happy. That's prosperity theology. Do you actually believe that's why God is, uh, died on the cross so you could have more of the world? And you think that's going to make you happy? That's, that, that's, that's the first one. Do you think that's it? Let's, so, so option A is prosperity theology. Is that where you think you find joy? Because Paul's going to show you actually the real answer. Number two is poverty theology. You'll be happy when you get rid of all your stuff. These are Christians that literally believe that the poorer I am is the more happy I'll be that if I get rid of the stuff of this world, they're both external answers. One's an external answer of having a lot of stuff is gonna make me happy, and the other answer is getting rid of all the stuff so I can be more happy. Neither are the answer. Here's the answer. Gospel theology. You'll be joyful when you get Jesus. That's it. Sometimes I feel like Christians want more than that. Well, I know it's Jesus, but there's gotta be more. Until you have that revelation, Until Jesus becomes the ultimate reward of your life, you'll never be content. Contentment is not getting what you want. It's actually realizing what you have. Getting the right circumstance, no. It's Jesus. And Paul said, I I got the secret, and the secret is Jesus. Oh, living for Jesus, becoming like Jesus. You read this book of Philippians, and all it's about is just Paul saying, man, I get to still proclaim the gospel. I get to be more like my Savior. I get to become more like Jesus. And because of all those things, empty, full, Guess what never gets taken away from me? Jesus. I think one of the reasons why so many people are stressed and don't have peace is they're always afraid of losing something. They're always afraid of losing something. Paul found the secret. He could never lose Jesus. There's nothing that could forsake that, that bond. Uh, uh, let's go on to the last stabilizer. So the first two stabilizers, peace and then contentment. The third one is people. Now, what, what kind of people? Not just any kind of people. The people of God are stabilizers in our life. I don't believe you, but when I fall down, Man, it's nice to know when I fall, it says in the Bible that if you fall down by yourself and nobody's there, it's just a sad moment in your life. But those who are three or more, when you have a friend, oh, there's their people to pick you up and to keep you warm. There's something about having godly people in your life to create stability when you are weak. Now, uh, you say, all I need is God. Read the Bible. The Bible is very clear that God loves to have uh, you in relationship with the body of Christ. The fulfillment of riches of heaven in Ephesians is actually being in community with the people of God. So let's see what it says here in Philippians 4. Paul, Paul brags about how he's been able to be stable because of this church of Philippi. He says this, As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first bought, uh, brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Stop. Paul wrote 13 of the uh, books of the New Testament, maybe 14 Hebrews. A lot of people believe you wrote Hebrews too. So you're telling me that he planted F- Ephesus. He was in Galatia, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi. And all these books, all these churches, the 13, only one church sowed into him uh, expanding the kingdom? Only one church said, hey, I'm going to bring some financial stability because the vision needs provision. Only one church. But it was the church of Philippi. And he said, oh, when you get generous people, when you get the people of God around you, they bring stability to what God's called you to do and called you to be. And so he goes on to say, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help uh, more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. He's just praying. He's like, I'm not even saying because I want more. I want you to know that what you did was so special, that you are a person that understood that God gave to you, that what got to you must get through you. It's this special moment where Paul's saying, you know where I find joy? Oh, I find joy just thinking about how good you were to me. I find joy knowing that you're the type of church that, man, I want to be around. Can I just say some mission, church? I want to be the church that people say, man, like when I, when I was at Mission Church, people helped stabilize me. When I was at Mission Church and I went through a hard financial time, I and mean, people at the church helped me. When I went through a hard emotional time, I and mean, people were there to stabilize me. Paul's just rejoicing. He's just remembering how great the church was to him. Man, Mission Church, let's do that right. I don't know if we've ever had a more opportunistic time to be a stabilizer in the midst of instability for people. It's a phone call. It's a text. It's a gift. It's a prayer. Man, most of the time, people just need an ear and an encouraging word from somebody. Man, let's be that, okay? Let's keep going. At that moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me uh, with uh, Epaphroditus. There are sweet-smelling sacrifice. Hey, I said Epaphroditus right. If you're at home, you're welcome. That was a gift. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you're up. Uh, there are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Woof. Did you know in the Old Testament, there's not one time anybody came to worship God without bringing a sacrifice? you know there not one time in the Old Testament when people came to the altar that they came empty-handed? They always came with something. Because uh, if I could just be honest, I think a lot of us don't understand where we're walking into the throne room. He's saying, hey, Philippi, you get what it, what it is when you're actually building the kingdom. You don't come empty-handed. Our culture, I'm, I'm going to stop right, right there. I want to hear this. Our culture creates customers. What Paul's saying is the kingdom creates partners. I don't know about you, but the worst kind of friendship is where your friend feels like a customer, not a partner, and not helping you build your life. I don't know about the worst. You know what a great church is? A church that partners with you, not a church that, is that makes a bunch of customers. I, I, for me, as a pastor, there are people that I've been thanking the Lord for in this thing because you've partnered with us. I, want, I literally started writing down a list, but I was afraid that if I wouldn't mention one person, I'd hurt somebody's feeling. So I'm not going to write down a list, but I'm going to say some people that you have been a partner at Mission Church, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to the Hill family. Thank you for serving in kids. Thank you for setting them on Setup Teardown. I want to say thank you to the Howell family. You're not customers, but you're partners. You set, every single Sunday, I see I see the, the Howell family just set it up and serving in kids. I want to say thank you to uh, Kira and Chad, all. in kids, you guys have been there since the beginning, day one. I mean, I could go off each person. Um, I want to say thank you to uh, our council members, uh, uh, the Glaziers and Lucias. From day one, you guys have just been with us in the midst of the storm. You've been stabilizers in the midst of unstability. I want to say thank you to the princes. You've been there since day one. Since day one, you've been there. You've been you've been somebody who's just been faithful to show up and serve. Oh, it's bringing stability to our church. You know what's so nice about showing up at church on Sundays is I know that those people are going to be there. They're not customers who come once a month. They're partners who say, "Man, you can count on me. I'm going to build the house." Man, I, can I say some more people. Uh, the Turkoviches. Thank you. The Villanuevas. Thank you. I, I, I could go. This this could be a message in itself. I just want to go down the list and just thank people. Oh, Mitch and Melanie Petrick. thank you, thank you, thank you. Teamly for setup. I, I see Mitch set up and I see Melanie go to kids to serving kids. I'm like, Lord, thank you for people who are partnering with us. The Woodworths. thank you, Dave. Thank you for doing sound. Molly, thank you for uh, being on worship. I mean, all these things. If I'm being honest, I love building with partners. My heart overflows when I think of these people. <sighs> Should I go another 10 minutes? To thank people. I got a lot more people. I want to. Oh, I want to. Oh. Uh, my concern from sharing that is if you didn't hear your name, forgive me. I, I could go on. There's so many of you that are just, oh, you've labored. You've labored. You've given. You've sowed. You've served. I just, I, I could go on. I literally, I mean, I could go. I, Weinberg's, oh, love you. Allen's, love you. I just could go. You guys, I, 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 I got to preach, okay? I got to preach. But trust me, there's too many people to list. That's what's so great about our church. I love that our church is partners and not customers. If you're watching this right now, This isn't an indictment that you're a customer. It's an invitation to be a partner. That's all Paul's showing. Paul's saying, man, it it gets really fulfilling when you become a partner of the kingdom. And then you have partners with you. Oh, it's the best. I, uh... Joy is found when someone is fuel for your life. Man, I want to be fuel for your life, and I want people to be fuel in my life. And really fuel is partnering. Uh, I, I want to finish with this, and... Uh, it, it goes in with the message, but really I feel like it's just a, can I pastor? I want to pastor real quick. I feel like this is a pastoral moment. So you have these three stabilizers I talked about, the peace of God. You don't want to get it from the world. But you got to practice the peace of God. You got to practice uh, meditating on scripture. You got to uh, understand that contentment, the secret of it, it's just Jesus. Not getting what you want, but realizing what you have. His name is, you, you have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's pretty darn good. And then last but not least, the people of God. Those will stabilize your life. Now this last one is, it's kind of just a surrender posture. I think, when I think about our culture in America, 55%, most stressed nation in the world, I just think we're full of control freaks. I think we think that we can actually control our life. I think that we actually think that we are the authors and the finishers of our life. We think we're the authors and finishers of our kids' lives. We think we're the authors and finishers of our plan and promise and calling. You are not the author and finisher. The Bible shows very simply that Jesus is the author and finisher. In December, I, uh, I went to the doctor because I was having a lot of chest pain. Now, time out. I'm good. I want, I want to tell you the end of the story. I'm healthy as an ox, okay? But I didn't know I was healthy as an ox in this story, okay? So bear, bear with me. So everything's fine now. Ta-da-da! Now, I have a heartburn a lot. I have a little birth defect in my esophagus called a Schotsky ring. Most people's esophagus are the size of a hot dog. Mine's the size of a straw. Creates heartburn. And your esophagus nerves are connected to uh, basically almost right next to your heart. So when you have heartburn, you almost feel like you're having something done with your heart. But it's just heartburn. I didn't know that. 37 years old. My dad had a heart attack at 49 going down a speed slide at a water park and almost died. Had to get a stent put in and get saved. Um, my uncle uh, passed away from a heart attack in his 50s. So there's heart stuff in our family. And so I go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm having some heart stuff. He goes, you know what? Let's just be safe. You're fine. But we'll get you a stress test and we'll just get a baseline to see where you're at. So I get uh, set up for a stress test. What a stress test is, is basically they take all these little things, they put them on your chest and then you run on a treadmill. And then they get you up to about 170 beats per minute to see your heart stressed out and see how it responds. And so I've been going to orange theory. I feel like I'm decent in shape. So I'm actually pretty confident I'm gonna ace this test. I love it. I love anything that shows me like you did a good job. So I was like, I'm gonna even feel great going to the doctor today, because I'm gonna get like, oh, you are so fit, you're so amazing. I was ready for a good thumbs up. Well, I start running on the treadmill, and I'm like, okay. And it starts getting pretty tiring. And I'm like, so hey, and I'm a talker, so I'm gonna let you talk lady the whole time. So how are you doing? She's, and she's really sweet at first. First five minutes, she's talking to me. But then five minutes in, I look at her and she's going like this. And she's like kind of freaking out. I'm like, And then I go, uh, are, am I okay? Am Am I? Am I? What's wrong? She's like, nothing. Uh, do you feel fine? Are you, do you feel good? I'm like, yeah, I feel fine. Are you sure? I was like, yeah. I, well, I did feel fine until you started asking me if I feel fine. And then she comes over and she takes my blood pressure. She's like, I'm going to check her blood pressure real quick. So I keep running, keep running. And she's like looking at, looking at me. And she's like, you sure you feel good? I was like, should I feel good? What, what, what you, what? And it's just, she looks at it. And at the very end, She goes, so we always look for these parameters in the stress test where the heart responds, and there's a moment when you're running that it spiked, and we have to refer you to a specialist now because you failed the stress test. And, man, my my heart sank. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I failed this. Am I gonna have a heart attack? Am I gonna die? Like, and the lady's response was so terrible, like, just still, oh. She did not play like a champ. She literally was like, you need to go to the doctor. (laughs) So then I, get a, I have to go to a Stanford cardiologist, get a heart echo. But here's what happens. Insurance takes time to approve it because it costs money. So for two weeks, it's actually 15 days, I have no idea what's wrong with my heart. Like, I had to wait 15 days. And so for 15 days, you know what I did? I bought a blood pressure machine on Amazon. I started taking my blood pressure. Rachel's going to test this. Morning, afternoon, night. I was like, OK, how am I doing? I had my watch on. And they have this little, like, heart EKG thing. So I'd always be, like, checking my heart. I'd be, OK, uh, okay, sinus rhythm, what does that even mean? I'd Google it. And I'd be like, OK, I think I'm going to be OK. And I'm, even in the midst of those 15 days, you know what movie? You know what? I went and saw the play Scrooge. You know what the last thing you should watch when you think you might die is Scrooge? It's about a guy who's going to die and gets a second lease on life. So I'm in the middle of watching Scrooge going, God, if, if you give me a second lease on life, I'm gonna live differently. I, I know, I, th- I thought I was doing good, but I'll be even better, I promise. You know? And so, literally I'm having this 15 days of just trying to diagnose what's wrong with me. I'm Googling, I'm starting to eat different for those 15 days. I tried to uh, be my own doctor and fix myself, and it was just the worst, the scariest 15 days I've had. Um, I called my buddy who's a doctor, childhood buddy. Hey, uh, I had this test. Can I still go work out? He's like, no, that would not be safe. And just everything I heard just was bad. And I remember going to the cardiologist, and I take the test, and he walks in, and he looks at everything, and this one is, of course, more expensive. It's way more accurate. And he looks at my heart, looks at me. He goes, oh, you're a great clean bill of health. You're fan- Get out of here. You're fantastic. And I remember just breathing, going, man, like I wish I would have talked to you two weeks ago. I wish I would have heard this report two weeks ago. I got a bad news report, and it took 15 days of my life. I was stressed. I'd be crying at night, thinking, "Like, is this literally how? Like, oh, like, Lord, I'll, I'll fix it. Do I need? What does this look like?" And then I get the great report, and I walked out, and I just have like a new lease on life. I had, uh, I came home that day, and one of the things that I had to do, I started looking at my whole life and everything else. I was just trying to control and thinking that I actually knew how to fix. I submitted my resignation as my own doctor. I submitted my resignation saying, you're not going to give yourself a clean bill of health. You're not equipped to. And so I would check my blood pressure. I check this. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what I know. I don't know what, I don't know the answer. It's the only way I'm going to have peace is if I go to the specialist. What I took from that is I started submitting the resignation for my whole life to the Lord. I'm not equipped to be in control. Can I tell you something? You're not equipped to be in control of your life. You need to submit your resignation of control to the one that gives you the best report. His name is Jesus. Can I just tell you real quick? You are maybe somebody else who's basically got a report from somebody. You've read something or you've thought something, and you've allowed that bad report to just absolutely torment you day after day. And the only way that happens is you go to the one that actually is the doctor of all doctors, and he gives you the right report. My plans are good for you. My plans are to heal you. My plans are for hope and a future. Th- th- these are the promises from our healer. I want to I read you Psalm 13. I thought, I think what's interesting is uh, you could see David uh, resign all the time because he'd be frustrated. I don't want to discount scary times. David's like, David's getting, dry. if we could go into our times, it'd be like being in south central LA, David's getting drive-bys. Like he doesn't know when he's going to get killed. He's getting spears thrown at him. The guy who's got the biggest gang, Saul, wants to kill him. And so David's frustrated. He has a promise on his life, but he doesn't know what's going on. Here's what he says. And this is something you should do this week. This is this is how you should pray. Share your fears with the Lord. The Bible says in 1 Peter, cast your cares. Don't hoard your cares. Cast your cares to the Lord. And so you'll see David cast his cares. He'll go, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? With sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? He's he's. He's casting his cares. He's casting his frustrations. He's not bottling them up. He's bringing them to the one that actually can give him the right report. He goes on to say, turn, the answer, uh, turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore, and, uh, restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Oh, he's, he's requesting, he's pleading, he's praying. And here's where he submits his resignation. It's a big old three-letter word called but. But I trust in your unfailing love. I trust that you're the boss. I'm not the boss. I trust in your love. I don't trust in my reason, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. Lord, I, I submit my resignation because I've seen what you've done in the past and I know that your character is the same yesterday, today, forever. So I, God, you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Ooh, I will, do you see what he did there? He, he, he brought his frustrations, his worries, but then at the very end, it just gets so special. He goes, but I'm not in control. You are. God, you, you said I was going to be king? I'm not going to author this story. You'll author this story. God, you said that these promises are my life, that, that um, all things work together for the good of those who love him? Well, if all things work together for the good of those who love him, God, I trust it. I submit my resignation. This week, submit your resignation. Submit it. I'll, I'll share one even little kind of cheesy illustration to make sure that you get this point, because I, 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 this has been a life changer for me. I went from anxiousness, literally 127 beats per minute for no reason, to for the last four months, been fantastic. I've had one little blip in four months. It was like nothing. It was like for like a minute. I was like, oh, well, hello there. Cast it. And I was good. There was a businessman on the East Coast. Simple story, but catch this. Same, same exact story, but I want to finish with it. Businessman, uh, he's been working 70 hours a week, finance job, uh, going uh, hard to the paint. He has a heart attack. Goes to the doctor. and The doctor goes, hey, the way that you're living your life right now, if you keep doing this way, you'll die of a heart attack. You got a little one, but this will lead to a big one. You have to change your life. You've been working way too much. You've been taking yourself way too seriously. You take your job way too seriously. You've got to change your life. That businessman went home, and what did he do in his backyard? He wrote a letter to the Lord saying, I submit my resignation as CEO of the world. Some of you think you're the CEO of your world. You're not the CEO of your world. Jesus is the author and finisher, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings. Submit your resignation today.